pre-budget insiders, Morrison's Hillsong lies, Putin's war, and the good news is for cows. This is a very special weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and I normally host the weekend wrap by myself, but today, after some technical issues on Wednesday, for the week on Wednesday, we have Van Batam joining us for a very special extended edition. So it's basically Wednesday on a Sunday. So it's the week on Sunday, really. The week on Sunday, that's right. The week on Sunday. Oh, friends, you cannot imagine the level of panic that beset Benjamin and myself when we realised we had spent a good 90 minutes recording the show on Wednesday only for it to not work. Yes, it was uh, quite a disappointing Wednesday night after what had been a very long day for both of us. But look, the upside is uh, people got a very short, sharp Wednesday night uh, edition, and now we get to have a longer look at what was discussed on Insiders. Uh, We're a few days closer now to the budget as well, so we'll be able to bring some more knowledge to that discussion. And, of course, we've seen since Wednesday uh, developments in Putin's war in Ukraine and with Morrison lying about Brian Houston. So there's there's plenty here for us to break down, Van. It's been a chunky week, that's for certain. But I also like to think our listeners got a really great demonstration into Australia's, you know, decaying and poorly maintained infrastructure, given the fact that we are supposed to be, you know, this leading um, technological economy and because, you know, since 2013 when the Liberals were re-elected, uh, the investment wasn't made in the kind of internet that we deserve. I'm recording the show from Sydney where I'm with my mum again and I'm just absolutely flabbergasted that I can live in literally one of the biggest and most, you know, supposedly influential cities in the West and the internet doesn't work. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty remarkable stuff. But talking about investments, obviously on Insiders today, there was a lot of discussion about the budget. The budget is due to be handed down on uh, Tuesday uh, evening. Uh, it it's been brought forward, obviously, because there's going to be an election in May. Uh, there's some talk that the budget might be handed down, and Morrison might run off to see the Governor General and call the election sort of end of the week that's about to start. Uh, and we we know that this budget, probably more than any that the Liberals have handed down, is is a challenge for them and the two kind of contradictory lines they want to walk, right? Like they need to spend money because there is a lot of cost of living pressures on people at the moment. People are doing it tough despite all the rhetoric about a strong economy. At the same time, they need to be be seen to be fiscally prudent and kind of tick the better economic manager box, even though, as we'll go into- The debt totally has grown out to a trillion dollars? And, and like this is the thing that I, I get really kind of worked up about, right? Like they talk about, they talked about debt when Labor was in government. They've 
massively expanded the debt. Fact check has found that Jim Chalmers's point that they most of the debt they piled on they piled on before the pandemic. Um, they've piled on another fifty billion in spending since the December mid-year review of the budget. You know they've wasted thirty billion. Thirteen billion of that was to profitable companies through JobKeeper. You know, like they've piled it on, piled it on, and yet Australia is still, relatively speaking, a very low debt country compared to many of the OECD countries, and and yet we're also a very low taxing country. In fact, we're the fifth lowest taxing country in the OECD. But as you say, we have crumbling infrastructure, we have not enough childcare places. There's people having their NDIS cut. You know, we've got no wages going backwards. Just some really structural economic problems that need to be addressed, but they're not addressing any of them. So they've spent all this money. They're not. They're not taxing, and they're just letting it all kind of fall apart around them. Oh, this is what I find so frustrating. So economically. As you say, there is nothing wrong with debt. There is nothing wrong. As long as you can service the debt, there's nothing wrong with taking it on. And that's what governments around the world do in order to meet, you know, the economic priorities of how they're shaping their countries and what they're prioritising and how they're building national security and all of those things. I've got literally no problem with the government taking on debt, you know, what I have a problem with is that the we're taking on debt for no reason. And this government, like no other government in Australian history, is spending our money on nonsense, like on absolute nonsense. So the JobKeeper, the idea that profitable corporations were given multi-billion dollar handouts by government, that's waste. That's not spending to invest in the people or national security or infrastructure or any of the things that actually make a society a more safe and stable and resilient place to live. It's spending on garbage. It's spending on gun rages for Bridget McKenzie and barrier reef authorities that haven't stopped coral bleaching. It's spending money on flying Matthias Cormann around the world after years of saying that climate change wasn't real to then tell the OECD now that he's the general secretary, the climate change is real. Like it's these constant boondoggles and pork barrels. I said it after Insiders Today, you know, there is nothing wrong with spending money. There is everything wrong with the government spending money when they are a government who never met a barrel that they couldn't pork. And and Van, you make an excellent point, right? Because it's the waste that's the problem with the Morrison government. There is just so much waste and it has really come to the fore in the last few days where we we saw Angus Taylor has wasted a billion dollars on so-called uh, carbon offset programs that haven't offset any carbon. And at the same time he was wasting that, Peter Dutton wasted over a billion dollars on contractors that didn't have any employees and didn't have any assets but just happened to be LMP donors. You know, and it really t- it has taken a fine tooth comb by Labor to dig this sort of stuff out, because the financial power of the Commonwealth is beyond what most of us can really comprehend. Like the the Commonwealth 
you know, it can levy taxes, it can it can create excises, it can borrow money, uh, it has tens of thousands of employees, it regulates whole industries, and in amongst all of that, labor conditions, yeah, you know, the priorities for education and skills development, uh, resources, the army. Forgive me if national security is on my mind, given that small Russian invasion of Ukraine thing. But the but the whole concept that the the Morrison government is getting away with wasting billions of dollars uh, at the same time, like you, you mentioned it, you know, it sets the the wage and employment conditions, not just of its own staff, but as I touched on uh, on Wednesday, it actually sets the tone for employment standards across the economy. And Jim Chalmers made the point today on Insiders. Under Labor, wages were going up 3.6%. Under the Liberals, they're up 2.1%. And now, of course, we know inflation is up 25 So that's a real pay cut. You know, some research from Australian unions uh, came out during the week that said people had already had a $1,400 pay cut last year and that, in actual fact, leaked budget figures were saying there'd be another wage cut this year and the RBA governor said there would be another wage cut this year. I mean, this is ridiculous. The government... The Morrison government can do so many things. It could lift wages for public sector workers. It could put in a strong submission to increase and encourage the wage. wage competition in the system, yeah, where it, people go, "Why on earth am I working for a profiteering, soul destroying, destroying corporation when I could earn more money serving my country and my community?" You know, and it could be putting in submissions to lift the minimum wage. It could be putting in submissions backing the disability support workers case for equal pay. It could be putting in submissions backing aged care workers case for lifting their wages. And it could be making the employment in the public sector more secure as opposed to shipping money offshore to multinational global uh, consulting firms. And outsourcing. So something that came up on Insiders today that deserved a lot of scrutiny uh, was the fact that the new Minister for Veterans Affairs um, has been complaining about government inaction, which is interesting given the fact he is a member of the government, and said that uh, veteran services were, and I quote, a national disgrace, that waiting times were just absolutely ridiculous. Real people, real veterans, real families are being absolutely like tortured by the mismanagement of that particular department and the services that any reasonable person would expect would be provided to people who, oh, I don't know, risk their lives to serve Australia. But 35% of the activities of the department have been outsourced. And, 35%. And, that, and, and as you say, Van, the real consequence of that is 60,000 veterans and their families have not been processed and, and received the support that they need. I mean, that's, that's a huge, there are real world consequences for the kind of wastage and rotting and, and, and just mismanagement of, of the budget and the economy that goes on, you know, and it's, it's in veterans affairs, it's in aged care, it's in the NDIS, you know, it's right across the board. In any Australian who has to interact with the Australian government, 
at the moment must be absolutely tearing their hair out. I want to give a shout out here, Van, to the work that Australian unions are doing in this space because I know that there are unions in the public sector, there are the Australian Services Union as well. There's a whole range of unions working to try and make these jobs more secure, to try and get government back as an employer of choice. And I'd encourage anyone who's interacting with the public sector, uh, either as a contractor or labour hire or ongoing, join your union. Absolutely. AustralianUnions.org.au slash wow. That's where you can join. And and then I want to touch on the the insecurity issue because it's economy-wide now. And I don't think the budget, none of the things we've heard so far on insiders or the leaks in the media have touched on these issues. But I got sent some very interesting stats yesterday that that there are currently in the Australian economy, two and a half million people are employed as casuals. There are a million people who are insecure contractors. Uh, then there's another 550,000 people who are on fixed term. These are usually people stuck on a six-month contract that gets rolled over. We've talked about this with higher education. Um, by the way, all three of those forms of employment either don't exist or are heavily regulated in how they're used in other OECD countries. Here in Australia, it's a free-for-all. There are 700,000 labour hire workers in Australia, 860,000 people who are underemployed, and another 865,000 people working two or more jobs. I mean, you know, out of a out of a workforce of between 11 and 12 million people, that's that's a stunningly large number of Australians who don't have job security, who don't have bargaining power to lift their wages who are being hammered by cost of living pressures and frankly you know they they'd be lucky they'll be lucky if Morrison throws them a couple of hundred bucks in this budget Oh, and that's the solution to everything. So, you know, ahead of the budget, we know the kind of, you know, budget details that have been leaked. Oh, I wonder who by. Um, that the government are planning to give like one off cash payments. One off cash payments. Not uh, stru- not structuralize uh, any kind of universal lifting of wages or do any of the things that you've mentioned that they can do to lift wages. That's not what's going on. Um, so these so-called like sort of cash handout promises uh, are being made. And uh, the reason why this is so disgusting, so you might remember that we were told recently that aged care workers were all going to get this special payment. Yeah, yep, yep, yeah, the $400. Are, are yeah. you aware of what the figures around how many people have received that payment have been? Isn't it something like only 3% have actually received it? It's like a tiny percentage. It's yeah. like I heard that it was maybe 20%, but right. it appears like it could be less than that. But this is typical Morrison government. Oh, we'll promise, we'll promise, we'll give you this money, we'll give you this money, this money is coming, and it doesn't come. And we've seen this as their approach to all of these different sort of policy challenges that we get told that the money is coming, that there's going to be a cash handout or a special bonus or whatever, and it doesn't turn up or it doesn't turn up for the majority of people. Let's name some of these projects. So there was this, um, you know, what I would call treating of aged care workers, all right, majority of them haven't received that money. Um, Let's talk about 
uh, what the Morrison government said that they were going to do the um, the uh, home renovation package, oh, homekeeper yes. yeah. or, or house builder or Reno Magic or whatever it was called. I mean, yeah. they, they, it was a t- this was going to you know stimulate building and regrow the economy. That never happened. Yeah. Right. yeah, we have these constant boondoggle funds, like the emergency, um, the emergency intervention fund that they put four billion dollars into and then didn't spend. When northern New South Wales and southern Queensland were literally underwater. And I think like, that's, I think promise, that's promise, really, promise, 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 rather short on the delivery. I think, and I think that's a really, you know, good example. The the disaster relief fund, you know, where. The, the goalposts change. There's always some reason. There's some excuse. Something unforeseen. You know, the the Morrison government is is big on announcements and long on excuses, but short on delivery. I mean, that, that's fundamentally what it boils down to. You know, I noticed some of the leaks around the budget are things that have already been announced, or they're announcing things that other governments are doing. So. I'll give you some examples on that. So they've announced a Southeast Queensland cities deal. Now, this is a big deal in, in Queensland because, of course, the southeast corner of Queensland, rapidly growing. You know, the Gold Coast is now, you know, I think the third or fourth, maybe the fifth biggest city in Australia, and it's rapidly growing. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on that kind of infrastructure. And of course, a cities deal means. This is what we're going to do. We have a plan. We're going to invest. We're going to build the infrastructure, all the rest of it. That was announced in 2019. Morrison has re-announced it this week. Likewise, a program for endometriosis, which is obviously an issue close to our Yes, I have endometriosis, everybody. And, And we know many people who do. And it's a serious condition. (laughs) Yes. the money that was announced for that was announced firstly in 2019, re-announced again this week. Again, nothing delivered in the meantime. And here we are, two years into a pandemic, on the cusp of yet another wave of COVID. We're seeing tens of thousands of cases every day now, right around the country, deaths every day, where you know, schools are shutting in New South Wales and Victoria, you know, it's it's looking grim for winter, frankly. And Morrison finally announces that they'll be investing in mRNA vaccine facilities in Victoria. Funnily enough, facilities that the Victorian government had already announced it was building uh, and was doing in partnership with um, the companies who make the vaccine. Like, it is just a constant litany. Even the apprenticeship announcement, which came out today, only goes partway towards replacing the apprenticeships that were cut all the way back when the Liberals came into power. You know, the budget needs to be, and Peter Malinowskis made this point in his victory speech um, when he won the South Australian election just only a week ago, that government can deal with the political problems of the day, but they have to invest in the future. They have to do what's right, not just today, not just for tomorrow, but what's right for our children and our children's children. And the Morrison government simply does not want to think about what's going to happen beyond tomorrow. No, they have the, the politics of five minutes. And you can see that in Morrison. He will say 
anything, literally anything to get himself through the next five minutes. And when a new challenge arises in 10 minutes, he'll just make it up as he goes along. I mean, this is the thing, you know, we literally have a government that makes it up as it goes along in the context where we have problems that cannot be solved that way. There are massive policy challenges in front of this country. There, There is a land war in Europe there is an invisible killer virus that is not going away and there is an environmental catastrophe that is devastating, ongoing catastrophe that is devastating communities. Like these are not, you, they're not fixable in five minutes. They're not things you can repair with some Band-Aids, at, you know, and some gaff tape. That's and, not where we are. These it- are just, these are multi-generational problems that that are only going to get exponentially worse the less that we invest and take responsibility for them now. I'm sorry that the world is difficult. I'm sorry that times are, you know, frustrating and complex and existentially threatening. I would love to live in, you know, a society that wasn't threatened with impending viral, environmental or, you know, military doom. That would be great. And then, then, um, and then, um, you know, to your point, to your point about, you know, we can't just continue to ride our luck. You know, there's there's a really interesting point here, right? Because Morrison has ridden his luck, and and liberal governments in the past rode their luck, because we've seen, and and it'll come through in this budget this week, right? That commodity prices have shot up massively, you know. In Australia, the mo- what we export to the world predominantly is commodities: iron ore, coal, wheat, oil, gas. These are things we sell to the rest of the world. And you know, when you think about the fact that in the last month the price of coal has gone up nearly twenty percent, oil twenty two percent, gas twenty five percent, and it means some of our biggest companies, their share prices, BHP is up thirty two percent. Rio, 16, Santos, 18, Fortescue, 22, Whitehaven Coal, which, by the way, the Morrison government went to directly in order to secure a shipment of coal to send to Ukraine via Poland. Poland, a country which, by the way, has plenty of coal of its own, and we could have just as easily bought the coal from Poland, but no, Morrison bought it from Whitehaven. Their share price is up 46%. Now, there will be bigger receipts from taxes on those things in this Commonwealth budget. And there will be lots of talk about how much better off the deficit is and da 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 But Morrison rides this luck and, frankly, it's, it's a diminishing return. In the past, we've had these record prices of iron ore or coal or gas or whatever it might be has meant, okay, we're going to cut taxes and still have a budget surplus. Oh, we've got record prices again. Oh, great. Now we're going to have uh, all this other cash handouts and and a surplus, but now even with these record prices, we're still going to have billions of deficit and all the structural problems. Yeah, so, and they're just going to blame the pandemic or you know a lack of productivity in the Australian workforce. You know you can um, and you know they'll talk a game about waste that is actually services or infrastructure and cut more of the things that we need. I mean we just see this again and again and again. Like the the Liberal Party is a hollow shell of the Liberal project. Like it has become the modern Liberal Party and the National Party, which is interchangeable. And I just want to remind everybody that the country Liberal Party, the Liberal Party, the National Party and the LNP are the same thing. 
They're the same thing. They are the same political party with the same people. The National Party is just like a, is basically a glorified faction of the Liberals and they're the same everywhere. And, you know, this notion of institution building that Liberals used to stand for and, and you know, the, the party of business and productivity and facilitating an economy where people could make money, like it's all gone. It's not an economy about earnest small business owners going out there and building their enterprise. It's a party that exists on a cycle where massive government favour is given to corporate interests who in return donate money from their gains to the party that has facilitated those favourable business arrangements for them. Like again and again, we see countries, countries, companies that get government contracts are the companies who are funding the Liberal Party. And then we go to elections and the Liberals have more money than God and spend it on lies and illusions and, you know, fantasies about what they stand for. And in a low-information environment where Australians are absolutely working themselves to death to pay bills, taking on more and more jobs and more and more hours, seeing less and less of their kids, in that kind of information environment where not everybody is on the payroll of studying politics all the time, those campaigns can be really persuasive. And yet, the Liberal Party is hollowing out the very promise of what of Australia is supposed to stand for, which is a contract between government and the people that government will build things and create jobs. That was the compact that was essentially struck with the Australian people during World War II by the Curtin government and that not even the Menzies government wished to abandon. You know, there was this shared vision of Australia as a place where you could make a living and have a roof over your head and have a government that ensured that you didn't fall through the floor. And that used to be shared. But now we're in corporate frat boy wonderland where it's just about doing absolutely anything for the vampires in the Liberal Party and the vampires in the corporate sector to enjoy the unearned privilege that they gain through lies. Well, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more strongly, Van. I think it it really, this budget we'll see again, you know, this talk of, uh, a small reduction in the fuel excise, which is the government tax on on petrol. Of course, that only really fundamentally benefits um, the the oil producers. Actually, when you think about it, it means they don't have to cut their prices. Um, there, there'll be the continuation of the the litmo, which was supposed to be a one off tax cut. Uh, there'll be you know continued talk of savings from NDIS, what they like to do is talk about, oh, we're going to guarantee, we're going to guarantee Medicare, we're going to guarantee the NDIS. And what they mean by that is, of course, they're going to cut it, but they're going to cut it in such a way as to continue to have the facade on the front. You know, and these are the lies that they tell. And it, and it is lies and it is ongoing. And Morrison's lies have now reached a point, I think, where people don't even really I think people, generally speaking, have a view that politics brings lies out of people and that there is a certain amount of lying that goes on in politics. Not saying that it's right, not saying that's what we want, but that people almost have come to expect it, sadly. This week we've seen lies where people are really scratching their head, and they did touch on it briefly on Insiders, where Morrison lied about going to Hillsong. You know, 
Brian Houston, the founder of Hillsong, has had to step down after revelations that he behaved inappropriately towards two women, one in the, in the church, one a, a woman whose hotel room he ended up in um, during a conference uh, who, who lodged a complaint about his behaviour. Uh, Morrison was asked about this and he said, you know, oh, it's appropriate that he stepped down and da-da-da-da, uh, but of course I haven't been to Hillsong in 15 years. Now, there is photographic, video evidence, there is there is an overwhelming amount of evidence, much of it put out by Morrison himself, that demonstrates this is simply not true. Brian Houston literally has his hand on Scott Morrison's shoulder just a couple of years ago on stage in front of thousands of Hillsong worshippers at a major Hillsong conference, and yet Morrison has lied about this. Someone on Insider said, oh, well, you know, for him to forget about it, it's like, hang on a minute, you don't forget that. You don't forget standing on stage at a big spiritual event, cameras, someone who's been your spiritual advisor for your entire adult life, putting their hand on them, calling you chosen by God to lead the nation. That's that's not the sort of thing Scott Morrison's going to forget, is it? No, it's not the thing that he's going to forget. It, I mean, it is just... It just does my head in. Like he thanked Brian Houston for his, you know, mentorship and friendship in his maiden speech, you know, the speech that sets the context of his representation in Parliament was about praising this man. And full disclosure, I spent a year undercover in the Hillsong Church because I wrote a musical about them um, because I had had through somebody I was close to an experience of their unbelievably damaging um, behaviour, unbelievably damaging. This person who, who I knew who had survived involvement with the church from a teenager but who had, you know, had been left scarred by it. And I went undercover and wore a lot of pastels and learnt the songs and, you know, clapped my hands and never handed over my credit card details, although I'm sure I do have a copy of the business directory they give you um, somewhere. And I went to sermons by Brian Houston and just the absolute hypocrisy of that organisation Organization, the control affected over the lives of young people, the just the pro, the propagandizing against you know natural healthy sexuality of young people is just so damaging, so hurtful, so awful, so traumatizing for some people, and. Just this, you know, this hypocritical behaviour, this lying. Morrison thanked that man in his maiden speech, you know, and praised him. And Morrison tried to get him an invitation to dinner at the Trump White House. Brian Houston's reputation precedes him. Not even the Trump White House thought that was a good idea. <laughs> this application was rejected, having Brian Houston there. There have been scandals with Hillsong all over the world. That was a massive improper behaviour scandal with one of their, you know, funky celebrity pastors who apparently ministers to Justin Bieber in, in America recently. Like they are a toxic organisation who push in prosperity doctrine theology, which, by the way, is heretical. The Bible is not a manual about how to be rich. That's not the message. And if that is the message that you are interpreting from that particular book, I think you are possibly reading it backwards. And um, 
It really oh, goes to show. I've got off on one, haven't I? I've got. No, off but it one. goes to show the point, right? Like we're about to have a federal budget which needs to deal with structural challenges in our economy, with insecure work, needs to deal with you know cuts in wages, it needs to deal with the inequalities in our healthcare system, our aged care system, our childcare system, our national disability system, and yet what. Morrison is going to offer up is really a kind of rewarmed version of that prosperity doctrine. You know, it, it's going to I mean, be. You just have to believe. You just have to believe and give your credit card to the Hillsong Church. They literally go around with envelopes in the sermons I attended and give you envelopes so you can sign, so you can put cash in them or just sign in your credit card details and and do a recurring payment. Like it is just sick. It is sick stuff, and <laughs> like. I can't, I, I'm just, the issue that Morrison has and the issue that I, I think Morrison believes he can get away with is he just lies so flagrantly, so obviously, so it's so easy to expose the lies. And this Hillsong thing just sums it up. I mean, the just gross, false, hypocritical non-piety of these people who put their hand on the heart, wave their hands in the air and sway to the triumphal drumming of, you know, soulless Christian rock, putting themselves in a position to morally judge the rest of it. Like he trades on this image. There are non-religious people who vote for Scott Morrison and have said this in focus groups saying that, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not religious, but I admire the fact that he's got a religious commitment that means he's moral. And you peel back the sticker that's plastered over that absolute nest of self-interested vipers and you can see what they really are and what they really stand for. Let me tell you, the Houstons are not living in poverty. These are not church mice who accept any counsel of perfection in the, you know, traditional Jesus way. And yet Morrison will lie about it now because it's convenient. But how how much can how far can you really campaign for election on we're going to give you this money and you're going to get this payment and all these magical things are going to happen and everything's going to be all right when everybody knows you're a liar. Like this yeah. is the yeah. this is the this is the window that that Morrison could fall through. That Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, said, I don't think I know, when he was asked if Scott Morrison had lied to him. You know, we've seen Morrison lie again and again and again and again, and this Houston thing is just another example. Has that translated in the, you know, time-poor Australian electoral demographic to people going, I do not actually believe that I'll see that money. I do not actually believe your promises that you'll be here in a crisis. It's interesting, isn't it, because what, we're starting to see is is obviously lots of research around the election, lots of focus groups, lots of polls, and there was something in I think it was the New Daily uh, at the end of the week that showed that Morrison is the least trusted politician in Australia, uh, and that he's the first prime minister to hold that um, position of least trusted since that particular type of research was being undertaken. Now that's I think goes to your point. You know, if people no longer believe what you have to say, it almost doesn't matter what you say because they're going to, they've formed a judgment. And I think this is where the 2022 election is so fundamentally different from the 2019 election. In the 2019 election, Morrison wasn't well known to the electorate. You and I and people in politics, 
um, and who were interested in politics more broadly had some idea of who it was. Yeah, I think uh, the term I used at the time was a psychopathic, narcissistic scumbag. I think that was. And, and I think history has borne, borne out that you were probably right. You know, he cut 300,000 people off the pension with the help of the grains. He was obviously responsible for on-water matters when it comes to- Gave um, himself a trophy for denying human rights to refugees. What a fine Christian. He he was, you know, a treasurer who cut and slashed a whole bunch of things. So we sort of had, we all sort of had that knowledge of who he was, but for the general public who'd been very focused on a kind of Turnbull versus Shorten contest, they people felt they really knew who Shorten was, but this guy Morrison was sort of unknown. And as you say, he said come across as a kind of man of faith and he didn't really announce anything during the election. He kind of just had his photo taken not being very good at tennis, which most Australians are not very good at, you know, and singing um, with Brian Houston on stage at Hillsong, all those things. Whereas now we've had a solid three years of Scott Morrison, you know, condemning um, the 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 March for Justice protesters by saying in other countries they'd been met with bullets about cover-ups and scandals and waste and rorts and lies and just pile and pile and pile and pile. And he's now running against Anthony Albanese, who the insiders panel kind of went, you know, elbows lefties run a bit late to define who he is as a person and, you know, people don't really know. It's like, well, hang on a minute. That worked really well for Scott Morrison. And in fact, people should know who Anthony Albanese is. He's been in parliament for quite a long time. He's a former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. He has been a minister responsible for infrastructure. Uh, like he's not an unknown quantity. But Morrison is so well known for who he now really is, and that is lying, rotter, who even lacked the, lacked the moral authority. You know, Van, you brought it up before. You know the, the the issue around around um, veterans and the processing of veterans um, support. You know, if if they really wanted to cut that, you know, they he lacked the moral capacity to go. No, no, I believe that it is correct for us to not invest in that because of the overarching position of the budget or the prosperity doctrine or whatever nonsense, insane things he believes. When the minister said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to resign and blow it up and make it a big political issue. Like Morrison backflipped immediately and began spinning and lying about it. And it goes to tell you what he, the only thing, the only thing that Morrison really actually truly believes in is holding on to power. Not to do anything with it, but just to hold on to it. Yeah, hold on to it and and stave off a federal ICAC. And I just want everybody to be really clear on this. Sometimes governments just run out of puff and political parties go, you know, it's time for renewal, like let's just not fight. Election campaigns are expensive. Let's not fight that hard. That does happen. Like that does. Yeah. But this Liberal government, despite the fact there are no ideas left in the policy closet apart from just give money to people who give money to us, which doesn't seem very ethical to me, yeah. you know, just yeah. hold on, lie, lie, you know, misdirect, misappropriate, you know, all of it, just do anything to stay in, in, in power is about holding 
off a federal ICAC because there there have just been too many scandals for any of these people to look to a future where there is an independent commission assessing corruption and think that they won't get brought before it. Bridget McKenzie and Sport Rorts, Angus Taylor and literally everything he touches, you know, Peter Dutton and these payouts to companies with no assets and no staff. Like again and again and again, there is compromised, compromising behaviour, there are deals done without transparency or accountability. There are massive amounts of money that get transacted and, you know, unstable processes. And the thing is, and this is the real danger of this election, because um, Labor have been so out ahead of the Liberals going, we will institute a federal ICAC, there will be a National Integrity Commission, like we see this as good for us as well as good for the country. We want mechanisms to ensure that everybody's kept in line. We know how successful these have been on a state level. The New South Wales ICAC I think is one of the great instruments of Australian democracy, obviously, Mm -hmm. because it brings down corrupt premiers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, and that's a pretty amazing check on power. The the issue is that if Morrison wins this time, if the Liberals scrape through, he will be able to say, oh, Australians don't want a federal ICAC because we didn't promise one and, yeah. you know, we didn't make that a priority and, these, and Australian people have re-elected us. So no problem, let's just kick that can very far away from us. That's the actual stake of the election and it's why it's more important than ever and I say this to people who would identify as Liberal voters I don't think you're liberal voters because you believe in corruption. I think you're liberal voters because you believe in liberal values and what they used to be and what the party demonstrably in the past used to represent, a centre-right, sort of pro-institution, pro-business perspective. Every genuine liberal voter I've ever met in my life has been from that ideological viewpoint. And it's healthy to have that in a society. You know, I am a democratic socialist. I believe in conversations on both sides of the political spectrum and that's how we negotiate our differences and, and make decisions that benefit and include everybody. Absolutely. And that's uh, not the modern Liberal Party. The no. modern Liberal Party is a front for the most absolutely yes. just g- gross, crooked behaviour I have ever witnessed in my lifetime, and it's got to be cleaned out. And like, I think and that, the mechanism think, is the election. I think, Van, the, the, the point, like I totally agree on all those points, and, and I want to I come to the, the issue around a democracy because, Fundamentally, what we're seeing now in with Putin's war in Ukraine is is the kind of extreme end of where a lack of transparency, a lack of democracy, a, 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 you know, a corrupted political system gets to. You know, and and it's not as though Putin emerged overnight. We've, you know, he's been in power a long time. He's been manipulating the Russian system for some time. Democracy doesn't really exist there. But you know, now of course he has, um, not for the first time, you know, engaged in uh, military adventurism, if you like. He has invaded one of his neighbours. He's invaded Ukraine, uh, and it's not going very well, is it? Can you? Just give us very quickly, you know, what's going on with Putin's war now in Ukraine? Okay, so I get up every morning and, the, and like a lot of people, and the first thing I do is check that Volodymyr Zelensky, who's the president of Ukraine, is still alive, and he is. 
Um, and this is, you know, despite four weeks of war and uh, the, the dispatch of mercenary groups by Russia to take him out, the Wagner group who are, look them up, they're not nice. Um, what's happened is, I mean, the the Russians said that, you know, the invasion would be over for 15 minutes. The soldiers who are mostly conscripts would be greeted like liberators, that it was going to be sort of shock and awe, blitzkrieg, tanks roll in, and there was this pre- this presumption that Zelensky would flee and they would install a puppet government and return to business as usual in if business is, you know, imperialism under an autocratic lunatic like Vladimir Putin. That didn't happen. Um, the Ukraine, So the Russians invaded Ukraine and the eastern territories of Ukraine and occupied them in 2014. And mm-hmm. obviously since that time, Ukraine, which is a democratic government, has spent rather a lot of time boosting its military, uh, investing in training, um, wargaming potential scenarios like this. So we're, in fact, incredibly prepared um, for what the Russians would do. We're in a situation now that it's now four weeks into a war that was supposed to be over in a few minutes. Um, the Ukrainians are holding out. They're defending their territory. There are, of course, Russian occupations and incursions on Ukrainian territory, and the but the Russians are in trouble. They are hemorrhaging equipment. They are hemorrhaging personnel. There's a really interesting sort of sort of um, parallel between autocracy and democracy going on. So an autocracy is when, you know, an individual or a leadership has just total authoritarian control over the rest of a country. All the decisions are top down. And in Russia, every decision is made by Putin ultimately. Um, and this is replicated in the, in the military structure where Putin says do this, you have to, there is no, yeah. it's all completely command and control sort of military yeah. strategy. The Ukrainians are a democracy and they have empowered their troops to be more mobile. Lower level commanders are empowered to make decisions at a battlefield level. It means that they've been running successful like guerrilla activity and ambushes and they're getting around the Russians. So you have these massive tank columns of Russians coming into Ukraine and the Ukrainians are surrounding parts of those columns, picking them off, blowing them up. And, of course, it is, the Russians are just getting meat grinded the conservative estimate from the US State Department is that, the, and this is a conservative estimate, 7,000 Russians are dead. The Ukrainians claim that it's probably more like 15,000. What we do know is that seven Russian generals are dead because their top-down structure means that to, to essentially get anything done, the generals who are supposed to be strategizing the campaign have to be really close to the fighting and what's become apparent is this vast Russian military that used to like put the fear of God into everybody, you know, its size and, you know, the militarization of Russia and all this, you know, investment and, and policy focus on building up their military. They're using like terrible equipment. There was a report the other day that 60% of their munitions are just badly made and failing. And that's like comparable to when the Nazis at the end of World War II were using slave labor and concentration concentration camps to make munitions and they were being sabotaged and falling apart. So who knows it's, what's going on in, you know, Russian munitions factories, although a lot of, you know, playing up to Putin and favoured status, people getting jobs making things that they probably don't deserve but have well, I was going to say, I was, was going to say, Van, I think, I think, you know, there's a parallel here 
uh, with Dutton awarding contracts to companies that have no staff and no assets. Yeah, the, the, the expertise should really be a factor, especially in national security. Like who makes this bomb best is kind of an important question, not who do I like the most who's offering to bank, make the bombs. And, and that's, I wanna, that's bad planning. It's terrible. It's, you know, and, and we're seeing, you know, I, I do think there are parallels to be drawn here because you do have here in Australia, the Morrison government talking about defence, talking about increasing defence spending, wasting a lot of money. And of course, Russia's had a very large military budget for a very long time uh, and had a very, very strong sense of military uh, pride in its military and played this up on the international stage, you know, big tank army, big artillery army, all the rest of it. And it's and it's falling apart, man. You know, oh, like- it's it's full on. Like these reports that are coming out of Ukraine, and yes, a lot of stuff that is coming out of Ukraine. There is propaganda, of course. There is the of Ukrainians course. have to keep morale up. But I'm looking at sources that are coming out from foreign policy think tanks, military analysts, and like verifying this information. And one of the reasons the Ukrainians have been able to pick off these generals and these really senior commanders is because they're actually tracking them on radio frequencies. Like for some reason, the Russians are not using all the highly encrypted communication equipment. So the Ukrainians are being able to physically target where these guys are and take them out. I mean, the deaths are confirmed. Some footage of some audio recording was released um, of radio communications that had been intercepted uh, by Ukrainians, by, you know, obviously uh, the friends of Ukrainians who are listening in, of, yeah. of various commanders complaining to their superiors in the Russian army that soldiers don't know what they're doing, that the commanders are making mistakes, that they're running out of food, that they're running out of fuel, that half the troop has frostbite. There was this unbelievable story about a tank um, commander who turned his tank on his commanding officer because he just watched half of of his friends be killed in a completely avoidable ambush. And it's been confirmed that the guy who was hit by the tank has been hospitalised and had his legs damaged. Like, that, you know, that we know that Russian troops are abandoning vehicles. We know they feel like sitting ducks. You know, it's, it's, they're living in their tanks, the guys in the tank column. Like, they're not... Not building yeah. camps or things. We know they're raiding houses. They're stealing blankets to stay warm. Like they're stealing lard. Like the Russians are so hungry that they're literally stealing lard from the Ukrainian houses that they take over in these offensives. And of course, the nature of the offensive has turned into just a destruction, like bomb them back to the Stone Age. The city of Mariupol, that apparently used to be quite beautiful, is just rubble. Now, absolute rubble. We know the Russians bombed a theatre that was sheltering old people and women and children. The Ukrainians even painted the word children in Russian outside the building so they wouldn't bomb it, and they did. Hundreds and hundreds of casualties. People are dying of starvation in Mariupol. Like the Russian tactic is essentially to destroy the morale of the Ukrainians by wiping out civilians. All of these are war crimes. The um, the Americans have said these are war crimes. Biden has yeah. denounced Putin as a war criminal. Um, the allies of Ukraine are getting behind these massive financial and weapon supply efforts to ensure that Ukraine can hold out. So it is particularly interesting about the dynamics of that situation. Meanwhile, two of the most senior Russian command, um, uh, Shoigu, who's like the the Minister of the equivalent of Minister of Defence, and um, Gerasimov, who's like the equivalent of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they haven't been seen for days. There was some sort of weird video of Shoigu that turned up, apparently with the Russians all deployed to Ukraine, 
problems are kicking off between Armenia, which is pro-Russian, and Azerbaijan. Like it all just seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. Putin, who's running short on generals, had one of them arrested apparently for disloyalty. We know that protests uh, against the war in Russia carry a 15-year sentence. State television is just blasting propaganda all the time. They're trying to blame the destruction of Mariupol on the Ukrainians, saying, oh, you know, this is what they do. Um, so it's it, like it's still a very unstable situation. There's international concern that the Russians in desperation may try and start using chemical weapons like they did in Syria. Um, yeah. So yeah. obviously we're at a point in this war where it's really important that the, the Western mind doesn't lose interest. Like this is not a television show and a lack of plot development shouldn't be a reason to turn away. Like Zelensky has asked for solidarity statements and actions and visibility and for people to keep the pressure on Russia and keep the pressure on governments to maintain sanctions. Well, I think... I think there is some plot developments though too, isn't there? Because you know, there's now talk that Russia will push, will, will pull back to the Donbass region, which is the far eastern part of Ukraine, which which borders on uh, Russia proper. Uh, we've seen one of the cities uh, near Chernobyl. Uh, it, it, it's it's ejected the Russian soldiers um, following days of protests. The soldiers weren't able to stop the protests. They, the protests were about the arrest of the mayor. They've had to free the mayor. Um, the, the soldiers have had to leave the city. They have put in a checkpoint. The citizens have been, uh, there are no military presence in the city now from Ukraine either. But, you know, there is some, there is, you know, from, from in terms of plot development, there is a lot going on in this space. And I think people do need to keep their, their eye to it. You know, Biden has been in Poland um uh just recently in the last couple of days and he's he's talked about even potentially Putin needing to go now the white house as i understand it van has has denied that that uh the us is calling for regime change but pretty strong language by the us now isn't there yeah it is very strong language i mean part of the issue is that the americans during the cold war uh, teleconferencing was set up um, between the Russians and the Americans as the world's two biggest nuclear powers to have chats just to make sure they didn't nuke one another. Um, and yeah. so it, a flock of geese wasn't mistaken for an intercontinental ballistic missile. Yeah, or yeah. a red balloon to give yeah. Nana and ninety nine Luftballons its its due. Um, but what um, what's been happening, of course, is with Shogu and um, Shogu and Gerasimov missing or busy or whatever they're doing, is that Lloyd Austin, who's the Minister of Defence in the American Cabinet, and um, uh, Mark Milley, who's the chief for the Joint Chief of Staff, head Joint Chiefs of Staff, they can't get through, and they're like, "This is a real worry. Like, we really need to." Um, we really chat. need to be in contact with them. So, I mean, this is a concern. I mean, the Americans are taking it very seriously. And Biden just got exasperated and was like, come on, this guy can't remain in power, was uh, the comment that he made. He is in Poland. He's meeting NATO troops. He's working with Ursula von Leyen, who's the um, uh, Secretary of the EU, um, in looking at, you know, what what further action can look like. It's look, we're in a really interesting period in world history. You know, there was an article the other day going, "Here's some news. Nothing's ever going to be the same." 
And it's like nothing's ever, to be fair, nothing's ever the same. No. You know, like I'm 47. I lived through the Iranian Revolution, the murder of John Lennon, you know, the the fall of the Berlin, Berlin Wall, the end of the Soviet Union, the rise of the Trump era. Like you, you, anybody who thinks anything was ever the same is, you know, I hope you're enjoying the comic book because it's not like that. Yeah, and it and it really, you know, just to just to bring it back, I guess, to give people a sense of 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 hope and 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 you know control over our own lives, you know, the, the beautiful power of democracy is that it means that we set the frame for what happens. You know, what's happening in Russia is happening because democracy doesn't function there. Yeah, you know, we have. Such a great, you know, Churchill. I think Churchill said, um, "Democracy is the worst of all political systems, except for everything else we've tried." And you know, I don't particularly like quoting Churchill, but democracy is better than every other political system. And people's involvement in it is what makes it work. You know, getting involved locally, state level, federal level, being a member of your union, being you know involved if you if you run a small business. Get involved with your local chamber of commerce. Do you know what you can to participate in democracy? And you know, if all you can do is rock up and vote on election day, then take that seriously and inform yourself when you do it. But so many of us can do so much more. I just want to yeah. correct myself. Ursula von der Leyen is the president of the European Commission. Ah, very country. good. But it um, is, you yeah. know, there is so much we can do. And Van. I think we should probably start to think about what the good news is. Good news is about seaweed, Ben. And it's good news for cows, the seaweed, isn't it? Yeah, it's good news for cows, it's good news for seaweed, and it's good news for reducing methane emissions. Um, I have to, I do have to check the pronunciation. It's sort of a bit like asparagus. It is asparagopsis seaweed. Asparagopsis. Nice. There's been a lot of research done into asparagopsis seaweed um, and various uh, research projects that have been run in Tasmania and around the place about um, seaweed as, uh, as uh, an additive that can be put in the food that we give to livestock. We know that livestock, uh, the burps and farts of cows and sheep are major methane emitters. Methane is a greenhouse gas and is bad. Very large human population eating a lot of little cows and little sheep tasty. And uh, there's research that's going into creating like a, a feed for these animals that's nutritious and delicious, but will reduce their methane emissions of up to 80%. Um, Chris Bowen did a really good video about this because Barnaby Joyce has been out. He's the deputy prime minister, by the way. I know it's difficult <laughs> to bear, but he's been running around saying that because there's a commitment from the cattle industry to get um, to get emissions down and for emissions to be carbon neutral by 2030. And yeah. he was like, the only way you can do that is by shooting your own cows. And it's like, or you could feed them this stuff that we grow, that we're researching, investing in as an industry, and we could feed it to them and reduce their methane emissions that way. That could be a thing that we could do without shooting cows or, you know, having vegetarianism at the end of a garden, which is the other option, which would work, but I'm not a fan. Um so this is part of a, a suite of sort of um, carbon reduction 
technologies that are coming not just around seaweed um, and uses of seaweed but looking at things like algae as well. There was some happy news this week about a biofuel plant in Turkey where they're using algae to make jet fuel that will be um, carbon neutral, carbon neutral jet fuel. And looking at those kind of technological solutions for emissions that are natural, that exist in the environment, that could be harnessed and and made into a solution is quite extraordinary. It's almost like rather than giving billions of dollars to corporations in JobKeeper who do not need it and just paid back to shareholders and dividends, we could actually have a government that invested in research and science and technology like the golden era of the CSIRO where Australia actually invented a whole bunch of things that made the world better, just one of which was lasers. I think that would be nice. And and Wi-Fi. Look, it's um, I think that's really good news. That's really good news for the environment, for for cattle growers, for people who enjoy beef as I do. Oh yeah. Uh, and you know, good opportunity for a new industry to to be created right here in Australia in terms of growing growing. Uh, I'm going to say it wrong. Asparagosis. Asparagosis. They Asparagus. eat it. It's a tradition. Traditional Hawaiian delicacy. There you and, go. Yeah, I'm just like. Well, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you use it? I mean, I'm happy to eat it. I'm always happy to eat seaweed. You know, I'm a bit of a seaweed Sally. A bit of yeah, a seaweed Sally. Yeah. And if you do get a chance to check out the Chris Bowen video, it is actually quite funny and well worth watching because it's also very informative. That is the very special extended edition of the weekend wrap. I want to give. We do our shout-outs to our Cadre supporters and our Extend the Reach supporters on Wednesday, and this Wednesday I did do it, but we've had two new people become Cadre supporters since Wednesday, and I want to give them a shout-out. Glenn Robbie has become a Cadre supporter, so welcome, Glenn. Um, And I wonder if um, we're going to have to reach out to you, Glenn, because one of my early childhood friends was named Glenn Robbie. So it'd be interesting to know if that's the same same guy. And Richard Sands uh, has changed his level of support up to cadre level. So a big shout out to you as well, Richard. For those of you who are interested in doing that, unfortunately, you do have to cancel your current support level and then pick your new support level. We've raised that with the platform. They are looking at fixing it, but it might take a while. So if you do want to increase your support, please do feel free to do that. We appreciate everyone's support, everyone who gets behind the podcast, who listens, who shares, who talks about the issues, who sends us emails, who comments on the posts, who leaves reviews on uh, Apple Podcasts. It's all great stuff. And of course, every dollar that we raise goes into making ads and getting more and more people listening to the podcast. So your contributions to that effort are really making it work. We're getting nearly 1,500 downloads a day. And I believe we hit the 350,000 download mark the other day. We have, we have screamed past 350,000 downloads now. It's, it's an incredible um, success. And I know, you know, from, from our perspective, Van, I, I just can't believe it. I'm almost speechless, speechless at the support um, people have shown to the podcast. And, I want to give a shout out too to everyone who's reached out to us, who listens to the podcast, who's then gone on to join their union and, and come back and told us about that. We really, really want to know those stories or has listened to the podcast and gone and, and bought Van's book, Q and On and On, a Short and Shocking History 
of internet conspiracy and cult. And made it an audiobook bestseller and an ebook bestseller and a paperback bestseller. If you love the sound of my voice, you can get 12 hours of me reading my book out to you. Um, it's on Audible. You can get it on Apple Books. Uh, I would love you to read it. A lot of things that are going on with information warfare at the moment will make a lot more sense to you uh, if you read the book. Absolutely. So huge, huge thanks from Van and I, and we appreciate everybody's patience this week as we have dealt with our technical issues, and we will speak to you again with a full breakdown of the budget that will have been handed down by the time we speak next. Until then, love you, Vanny. I love you too. I miss you. I miss you too, darling. Look after the dog. Bye. Bye.